The president of Harvard is stepping down after she was widely criticized for her testimony on Capitol Hill regarding anti-Semitism on campus and after more accusations surfaced about plagiarism. Claudine Gay was the first black woman president in Harvard's history. Today is Tuesday, January 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up in South Korea's latest outburst of political violence, the country's opposition leader has been stabbed in public ahead of the general elections in April. And a new California law prohibits people from bringing firearms to parks, museums, and other locations, even if they have a concealed carry permit. California has identified a list of 26 places that the law calls sensitive. The restrictions are already facing scrutiny in the courts. These stories and Wall Street numbers, the first of the year, coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Hamas confirms that four of its officials, including a top leader, were killed today in an explosion in Beirut. Local reports say it was a drone attack by Israel. NPR's Daniel Estrin has more. Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, has vowed to attack Israel if any Palestinian leaders in Lebanon, where he's based, uh, are attacked. We will have to see if this represents a turning point in this war. Uh, could it escalate hmm. Hezbollah rocket fire onto Israel or or Hamas rocket fire? Israel will have to see whether it uh, considers this to be a big accomplishment. Israel has been looking for uh, a way to declare victory against Hamas. Uh, Israel's goal is to destroy Hamas's capabilities in Gaza. And Israeli officials have said that one of the signs of victory that they will be looking for in this war is destroying uh, or capturing or killing some of the top leaders. NPR's Daniel Estrin. An Israeli government spokesman says Israel will appear before the International Court of Justice on accusations of war crimes. South Africa has asked the court to order Israel to halt its crackdown against Hamas, calling it genocide. Harvard's President Claudine Gay is resigning. For member station GBH, Kirk Harapeza has details. In an email to students and staff, Gay announced that she will step aside. Her departure follows widespread criticism of her congressional testimony on alleged campus anti-Semitism, months of backlash to her initial response to the Hamas attack in Israel, and increased scrutiny of allegations that she plagiarized parts of her academic work. Gay was the first black president in Harvard's nearly 400-year history. The school's provost, Alan Garber, will take up the job on an interim basis. For NPR News, I'm Kirk Carapeza in Boston. Officials in Rochester, New York, say there's no evidence the man who crashed an SUV loaded with gas cans into concert goers early yesterday was motivated by political views. The SUV collided with a rideshare car, killing two people. NPR's Brian Mann reports. The collision occurred early on New Year's Day morning after a rock concert in Rochester. Police say the driver of the SUV, Michael Avery, who since died from his injuries, appeared to intentionally accelerate toward pedestrians. After the fiery crash, police found more than a dozen gas cans around the SUV. But Rochester Police Chief David Smith says there's no evidence it was an act of terrorism. Additionally, we have not uncovered any information leading us to believe that the actions of Michael Avery on New Year's Eve were motivated by any form of political or social biases. Two other people remain in critical condition. Officials say family members told investigators Avery might have suffered from undiagnosed mental health issues. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York. On this first trading day of 2024, just before the close, the Dow was up 25 points. The S&P was down 27. 
This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. We have more now on the resignation of Harvard President Claudine Gay. Speaking today with Here and Now, WBUR's Max Larkin said even in the past 24 hours, there have been new problems for Gay. I don't think it looked good that as the new year uh, ticked over that the Washington Free Beacon uh, conservative publication surfaced more plagiarism instances, allegedly, and that basically half of her academic work was sort of contaminated with that kind of charge. Larkin says despite Harvard's governing board initially standing by gay, the mounting allegations of plagiarism may have caused it to rethink its decision. Reaction is coming in from the Harvard community following the announcement. Harvard government professor Steve Levitsky was one of the original authors of a letter signed by hundreds of faculty members supporting gay after her congressional testimony last month. Levitsky says her resignation over pressure from Congress and outside donors sets a dangerous precedent. The folks who carried this forward, who brought the anti-Semitism issue to a climax and who then, after that failed, dug up the, the, the pleasures and stuff, are forces who have an agenda to assault and weaken elite universities. And yes, Harvard is obviously the principal, most prominent representative of the universities. Gay intends to remain at Harvard in a faculty position. Employees of Mass General Brigham are once again required to wear masks in clinical care settings. The new policy went into effect today amid rising COVID-19 cases in the state. A similar policy also went into effect today at UMass Memorial Medical Group. A new analysis is showing a 24 percent vacancy rate statewide in community human service providers. Those workers serve people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, including autism. The Association for Developmental Disabilities Providers notes the vacancies are decreasing for day programs. They've gotten higher state reimbursement rates in recent months. If you still need to get rid of your Christmas tree, maybe a goat could help. We're not talking about Tom Brady. We mean an actual goat. One local business, Christmas Tree for Me in Boston, can help arrange that. Company staffers will pick up your tree, vacuum your living room, and donate the tree to a local farm. Company owner Jeff Frisha says it's an eco-friendly way to dispose of your tree. They love them. They snack on them all year long. And there's good nutrients in the needles and the small branches that they'll enjoy eating. Tree pickup services will run through the 7th of January. Clear skies from today giving way to increasing cloudiness overnight tonight. Lows about 28. Tomorrow may start up overcast before sunshine burns through. Should make it to the mid-40s. And then Thursday, clouds are back just above 40 degrees. 38 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Former President Donald Trump has been kicked off the primary ballots in Maine and Colorado. Several other states are considering challenges to Trump appearing on their state's primary ballots. All of the challenges are based on the 14th Amendment Insurrection Clause and argue the likely Republican nominee should be excluded because of his role in the January 6th insurrection. But what could these challenges and decisions mean practically and politically for the former president? Those are questions we're going to discuss right now with NPR senior editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey there. Hey, great to be with you, Anna. 
Thanks for being here. Okay, so former President Trump could appeal the Colorado decision to that state Supreme Court, the Maine decision to Maine State Superior Court. But, Domenico, do Colorado and Maine actually matter to the former president in the general election if he is indeed his party's nominee? Well, you know, both have trended Democratic, so they're not exactly swing states. You know, Colorado used to be one, but not anymore, really, with the growth in Denver and its suburbs. Trump did win an electoral vote out of Maine, we should say, in 2016, because they apportioned their electoral votes by congressional district, not winner take all, like most of the other states. And, you know, one of those districts does lean to the right, so he was able to win that. Certainly, with how close elections have been in this century, of course, every electoral count votes, but this is really beyond the idea of simply counting electoral votes. You know, it goes to what's fair, you know, and these novel interpretations of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which states that no one who had been an office holder can hold office again if they, quote, engaged in insurrection or gave aid or comfort to those that did. You know, and this has never been tested really legally before. And it's coming at a time when the caucuses and primaries are kicking off in less than two weeks. Yeah, that's right. Domenico, I mentioned that there are a couple states where there are similar challenges. When you think through the fact that any presidential candidate needs 200 70 electoral votes to win. Could former President Trump being kept off the ballot in any of the other states make a difference here? Theoretically, it could. I mean, you know, there are challenges in swing states like Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Virginia, and Wisconsin. But we got to throw a little bit of cold water on the likelihood that Trump is going to be left off the ballot anywhere at the end of the day. You know, Colorado and Maine are in the minority on this right now. Colorado is the only state court that's weighed in on this. Maine Secretary of State, you know, acknowledges herself that, you know, this was only the beginning of the process in her state. You know, the state court there will eventually weigh in. And both states don't have much teeth behind their decisions because they're essentially deferring to the U.S. Supreme Court and calling for it to act. And I have to say, I have a hard time believing this won't be settled by the Supreme Court. The clock is really ticking here. I mean, I don't have to tell you this, but the primaries are just around the corner. And I mean, ballots have to go out to give people time to vote. How does this legal odyssey factor into that? I mean, it's potentially a real mess. I mean, ballots are going out soon in all of the states for the primaries. And as people start thinking about the presidential election now in this new year, it really is going to cause a lot of confusion. You know, we've already seen that with Trump's legal problems otherwise, with the multiple criminal counts that he's facing. But this is more tangible even than that, because this is about whether his name will even be on the ballot in some of these places. And it's already a complicated process. Overseas and military ballots are going to have to be printed and sent out, and more urgently, dealing with the primaries. And we should just remind folks here that these cases, they're separate from the criminal charges that the former president faces in several courts across the country. Domenico, where do those stand? Yeah, I mean, they are separate, but they're part of this whole sort of tangled web we've been talking about. You know, those cases are also in limbo somewhat because of delays that we've seen. You know, the name of the game really for Trump's team is delay, delay, delay. They're trying to kick the timeline as far down the road as they can in hopes that we don't see any trial this year. You know, he he could win re-election, they hope, and move to have the federal cases, for example, dismissed. The state cases are going to be tougher for him to do that. And a state like Georgia, which has its election interference case, is slated to begin August 5th, which could mean an O.J. Simpson-style trial with cameras in the courtroom taking place during the general election. That is, of course, if that trial even starts on time. And Domenico, last thing about the voters. How is all of this playing with them? 
Well, when I talk to Republicans, I really see what's happening in Colorado and Maine as evidence for Trump's argument that he's been unfairly persecuted, that, you know, these are politically motivated. And it's really quite something because we all saw what happened on TV January 6th, three years ago now. And yet a new Washington Post University of Maryland poll out today showed that fewer than one in five Republicans think that the January 6th protesters were, quote, mostly violent. And they, that's down eight points compared to three years ago. So it just shows you how much Trump's public relations effort on this has worked in the last three years with his base, why he's only strengthened his hand in the primary, and why it's been so hard for any of his Republican rivals to dislodge him. NPR senior editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro, thank you. You're so welcome. Okay, so 2024 is an election year, yes, here in the U.S., but also in South Korea. And that country's political calendar got off to a violent start this week when an assailant stabbed the leader of South Korea's main opposition party with a knife. NPR's Anthony Kuhn says some observers see it as a warning sign about the state of politics in one of Asia's leading democracies. Lee Jae-myung is the leader of the opposition Democratic Party. He was squeezing his way through a scrum of journalists and supporters in the southern city of Busan when an assailant posing as a supporter approached him, pretending to try to get his autograph. He lunged at Yi and struck him in the neck with a knife. Police hustled the assailant away and arrested him. He fell to the ground, bleeding. He was taken to a local hospital and then airlifted to Seoul for surgery. President Yoon Song-yeol, who narrowly beat E for the presidency in 2022 elections, condemned the attack as unacceptable. Democratic Party spokesman Kwon Chil-sung spoke to reporters after the incident. We strongly condemn this terrorist attack by the unidentified assailant, he said as it is clearly a destructive act against democracy. Kwan later said that E is in intensive care after doctors repaired damage to his jugular vein. Busan police later told reporters that the suspect in the attack was a man surnamed Kim, born in 1957. Kim told police he had intended to kill E, so police planned to charge him with attempted murder. Police are still trying to find out his motivation. Political violence is hardly new to South Korea. Yi's predecessor was attacked by an assailant with a blunt instrument two years ago. Political commentator Yi Jong-hoon, who is not related to the opposition chief, says Tuesday's attack shows a combination of social and political ills afflicting South Korea. On the social side, he notes, the country has seen an increase in crimes committed by alienated loners with extreme views. On the political side, he says... Bipartisan cooperation is disappearing, and in its absence, the politics of anger is spreading. This has to do with politicians weakening capability for political negotiation. During the previous liberal administration of President Moon Jae-in, he says, there were at least attempts at compromise, even if they didn't work. But under this administration, bipartisan cooperation has disappeared and extreme confrontation between the two parties has continued. And more recently, ahead of the general elections, the confrontations are deepening. He notes that conservative politicians have been attacked too, including former President Park Geun-hye. A stabbing attack on her when she was opposition chief in 2006, he says, helped her party win local elections that year. 
A lot is riding on this April's general elections. South Korea's economic growth is slowing and its population is aging and shrinking. And tensions on the Korean peninsula are mounting as North Korea builds up its nuclear arsenal and cultivates closer ties with Russia and China. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Anna Ophelia Murgia is best known in the U.S. as the voice of Mama Coco in the 2017 Disney Pixar movie Coco. In Mexico, she was a well-known actor known for her work across film, television, and theater. She died on Sunday at the age of 90. Mexico's National Institute of Fine Arts announced her death on social media over the weekend. NPR's Andrew Limbong has this appreciation. The 1978 movie Naufragio opens with a woman in a robe prepping what looks like a boy's room. We see travel posters on the wall, a globe on the desk as she unmakes the bed and lays out some clothes and tells herself that he will be here tomorrow. He is her son Miguel, and we know through Ana Ofelia Marguilla's longing looks that this is more wishful thinking than anything else. Marguilla brings that same dreamlike quality to her role in 1991's Mi Querido Tom Mix, where she plays a grandma, proudly declaring that no one is faster than her favorite on-screen cowboy Tom Mix. Nadie es más rápido que Tom Mix. Si lo sabré yo. Y no me digas abuela. And of course, in 2017's Coco, she voices Mama Coco, the aging matriarch who is losing her memory, grasping onto what little she remembers of her father. Papa is home. Mama. Calmese. Calmese. Papa is coming home. No, Mama. It's okay. I'm here. Who are you? Ana Ophelia Marguilla was born in 1933. She made her onstage debut in 1954 in Trial by Fire. Her acting career spanned decades, racking up prestigious awards, including multiple Ariel Awards, Mexico's Oscars. Earlier this year, the National Autonomous University of Mexico gave her its Ingmar Bergman Medal for her acting work. At the ceremony, fans and peers spoke lovingly about her work, but when it was Marguilla's turn to speak, she said, Estoy exhausta. That she was exhausted from all the attention, and why for me? Otra vez que yo por qué? A mí por qué? But it's because of moments like the big song in Coco, where Ana Ofelia Marguilla's Mama Coco remembers her father with her great grandson's help. Until you're in my arms Andrew Limbaugh, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Harvard University has been steeped in controversy for months now. The issues came to a head today as President Claudine Gay submitted her resignation. Our report is coming up in about 20 minutes. WBUR supporters include Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. SunbugSolar.com. 
The first trading day of the new year saw the Dow up, but not by too much, less than a tenth of a percent. S&P and Nasdaq both lost territory. S&P was down more than a half percent. The Nasdaq gave up more than one and six-tenths percent. Lexington-based Voyager Therapeutics is expanding its relationship with Swiss pharmaceutical giant Novartis. They struck a deal worth up to $1.2 billion. Under the agreement, Voyager will develop gene therapies for Huntington's disease and spinal muscular atrophy. Voyager stock closed up today, nearly 17 percent following the news. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. Clear skies from today will give way to increasing cloudiness overnight tonight, about 28 degrees for a low. Tomorrow may start up overcast, but then the sunshine burns through, should make it to the mid-40s tomorrow. Then Thursday, clouds return just above 40 degrees. 38 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. In America, few things get tempers flaring more than parking. Yet around the country, cities are throwing out their own parking requirements, hoping to end up with less parking and more housing, as NPR's Laurel Wamsley reports. In Austin, Texas, the city council recently proposed something that could seem like political kryptonite, getting rid of parking minimums. Those are the rules that dictate how much parking housing developers and businesses must provide, as in a certain number of spaces for every apartment. Some residents, like Malcolm Yates, were against it. Austin has developed as a low-density city without adequate mass transportation system. Austin citizens cannot give up their cars. But much more numerous were voices like Ty Kovenkis in support of eliminating the city's minimums and the impact they've had, from housing costs to congestion to walkability. I think our country has used its land wastefully. We literally paved paradise and put up a parking lot. The amendment sailed through the council, making Austin the biggest city in the country to eliminate all its parking mandates. But it's not just Austin. More than 50 others across the country have thrown out their minimums, from Anchorage, Alaska and San Jose, California, to Gainesville, Florida. They're all just dead weight. That's what Tony Jordan, the president of the Parking Reform Network, thinks of the requirements. One problem is just how arbitrary they can be. Bowling alleys are one of my favorite. He says the number of required parking spots per bowling lane could vary from two to five in cities right next to each other. What's the difference between a bowler in city A and city B? Nothing. It's just these codes were put in very arbitrarily back 30, 40 years ago, and they're very hard to change because every time the city wants to change them, there's a whole big hoopla. But random as these rules can be, they have major consequences. Parking creates sprawl and makes neighborhoods less walkable. Asphalt traps heat and creates runoff. And parking minimums can add major costs to building new housing. A single space in a parking structure can cost $50,000 or more. But the real problem, says Tony Jordan, is what doesn't get built. The housing that could have gone in that space or the housing that wasn't built because the developer couldn't put enough parking. So we just lose housing 
in exchange for having convenient places to store cars. A new survey from Pew Charitable Trusts found that 62% of Americans support property owners and builders to make decisions about the number of off-street parking spaces instead of local governments. Angela Greco, a 36-year-old musician and copywriter in Austin, is one of them. I love it. I think it's great. She drives, but prefers to walk or take transit. She's not worried that doing away with the old rules will make it too hard to find parking in Austin. And I've lived in, like, cities where it's way more difficult, like New York and L.A. Parking just isn't that difficult in Austin to me, even in really dense areas. And what about the idea that cities without good transit can't cut back on parking? Jonathan Levine, professor of urban planning at the University of Michigan, says cities' requirements can make good transit nearly impossible. An area that has a lot of parking is transit-hostile territory. That parking essentially is calling to the drivers, drive here, park here. So if you keep on designing those areas by governmental mandate, you're creating areas that transit can't serve effectively. These ideas are spreading, and many more U.S. cities, including New York, Milwaukee, and Dallas, are now exploring getting rid of their parking minimums, too. Laurel Wamsley, NPR News. The term hit bottom often comes up in conversations about addiction. Loved ones are told if they let the addicted person face tough consequences, they may stop using substances. Some addiction experts are trying to debunk that idea. They say loved ones should try to play a different role. For member station WBUR, Deborah Becker has the story of a Massachusetts family that tried both approaches to help their son. Close to a third of all adults in the U.S. say someone in their family has been addicted to opioids. Ken Feldstein is among them. His son Brendan was in college when he became addicted. Ken and his wife felt alone as they desperately looked for advice. We felt we couldn't, you know, talk to neighbors or friends about it. The the stigma is so, so strong. They went to peer support groups, and while helpful, Ken says the advice was clear. Distance yourself from your loved one or you're enabling, almost like putting a syringe in your child's arm. So, big gulp of that Kool-Aid, and it sounded very reasonable because nothing we were doing was working. Ken says they opted for the so-called tough love approach and didn't allow Brendan to come home. Ken was anxious. He didn't get any better when we made the decision to not let him stay at the house and he could have died. Ken did not want to take that risk and welcomed Brendan back into the family. So I landed on love. I still feel that love wins. Brendan noticed the shift. I'll never forget the look on his face. It was just a a mixture of love and sadness of all the experiences that I had in trying to get sober and failing. That stayed with me. For Brendan, treatment alone wasn't working. You know, did it give me a, a bed and food, and, and was that helpful in a survival sense? Yes. Did the experience help me remain sober? I think I used the day I got out. That pattern was about to change. Brendan had been in another treatment program for just a few weeks when his mom went into hospice care at home. The rehab's rules were, if he left for any reason, he could not return. But Brendan went anyway to help his family. I ended up carrying my mother in my arms like a a child up the stairs. 
it was a sort of literal and figurative moment of strength for me. Brendan truly realized he had reached a turning point when he opened the fridge and saw his mom's liquid morphine. At the time I was alone, I, I held it there for a bit. But he put it back. I decided in that moment, never again, not doing it anymore. You've caused enough hurt, it's time to step up and give this family, you know, a reason to, to hang on. Brendan has not used drugs in the almost decade since. A strong 12-step fellowship and the support of his family, he says, were key to his recovery. Some addiction clinicians are encouraging providers to lean on so-called social supports like families. Alicia Ventura from Boston Medical Center is teaching this approach to thousands of providers. Ventura says with the deadly opioid fentanyl permeating the drug supply, treatment needs to evolve. We need to start trying new things. And part of that really is going to be improving their interactions with their families and taking advantage of these people who innately love them and want to care for them. Research does show that human connection is key to overcoming addiction, and people whose loved ones can be involved are more likely to go into treatment and recovery. Ken Feldstein says it shouldn't be one approach versus the other, and each family needs to do what works for them. You've got to be able to do the thing that you do best as a parent, and that is love your children. Now, whatever form that takes, I don't think that's enabling. Because, he says, there's no one way to achieve recovery. And for most people, even his son Brendan, it's a complicated, unique journey. For NPR News, I'm Deborah Becker. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the president of Harvard University turns in her resignation, the backstory and reaction to the controversies that led to her stepping down, coming up in about 15 minutes. It's going to be a busy night in sports for the locals. Boston Bruins will be in Columbus, Ohio, to take on the Blue Jackets. Face-off is at 7 o'clock. Celtics will face the Thunder in Oklahoma City. Celtics are looking to improve on their league-best 26-6 and record. Tip-off is set for 8 o'clock tonight. This is W. WBUR 38 degrees at 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com and Summer Orchestra Institute at New England Conservatory. For students 13 through 18, priority registration ends February 4th. Apply at necmusic.edu. A family in El Paso, Texas, describes driving home from a visit to Mexico and being rammed by law enforcement officers in unmarked vehicles. They came in charging. As soon as I opened that door and I told them, this is just me and my family, their faces just changed drastically. One family caught up in a crackdown on smugglers. That's on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. Police in Denver have arrested a man who broke into the state Supreme Court and fired a handgun. Matt Bloom from Colorado Public Radio has more. The suspect allegedly fired a shot into one of the building's windows and entered around 1.15 a.m. on Tuesday morning, according to police. 
Inside, he then held a security officer at gunpoint and stole his keys. Then police said he walked through the building, firing more shots and causing, quote, extensive damage. Police reported no injuries to other occupants. They say it appears unrelated to other recent threats against the Colorado Supreme Court after its ruling disqualifying former President Donald Trump from the state's 2024 GOP primary ballot. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bloom. A senior Hamas leader was killed in an explosion in Beirut today. Salah al arori was one of the founders of Hamas's military wing. Lebanon state-run news agency says an Israeli drone caused the blast and four people were killed. Israel has not commented on the death, but the country's prime minister had threatened to kill al arori even before the start of its war with Hamas. A Japanese passenger plane collided with a Coast Guard aircraft at the Tokyo airport today and burst into flames. Officials say at least five people on the Coast Guard plane died in the crash, but everyone on the passenger jet made it out safely. Michelle Yehi Lee is the Washington Post bureau chief. She says an orderly evacuation likely saved lives. It's remarkable how much speed and order there was in the deplaning of this passenger plane. I mean, the fire trucks came immediately. They were still putting out flames for hours after people had deplaned and it is quite remarkable that almost 400 people were able to deplane so quickly. The Coast Guard plane was going to deliver emergency supplies to earthquake victims. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed up 25 points today on Wall Street. The Nasdaq closed down 245 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Harvard President Claudine Gay is stepping down from her post after just one semester on the job. She announced her resignation today in a letter to the Harvard community. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has more. Gay wrote that she made the decision so the university can meet this challenging moment with, quote, a focus on the institution rather than any individual. Her six-month tenure as president has been rocky. She's faced backlash from alumni and others for a delayed statement that critics say didn't strongly enough condemn the Hamas attacks on Israel. Republican lawmakers then called Gay to Capitol Hill to testify about anti-Semitism on campus, where she again faced criticism for her weak responses. She has also faced growing concern over plagiarism in her previous academic work. Harvard's main governing body says provost and chief academic officer Alan Garber will serve as interim president. Gay intends to stay on as a faculty member at Harvard. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. Some new tax cuts are in effect with the start of the new year. They come from the billion-dollar tax relief legislation Governor Maura Healey signed into law in October. A larger child and dependent tax credit is among the changes. Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation President Doug Howgate says parents should really notice the change. For tax year 2023, so the one just ended, the amount was raised to $310. And now this year, so going into effect yesterday, it goes up to $440. So that's really the big one that was phased in over a couple years. Increased tax credits will also spur housing development in so-called gateway cities such as Chelsea, Lowell, and Brockton, he says. Many of the other tax changes will be retroactive to last January, including a larger earned income tax credit. One person has died and more than 30 others have been displaced after an early morning fire in Cambridge. Flames broke out shortly after 4.30 this morning at the 30-unit apartment building on Chester Street. More than 60 firefighters responded to the scene near Davis Square. One firefighter was taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. The name of the person who died has not been released, and the cause of the fire remains under investigation. It's 4.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, 
Playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexisBroadwayInBoston.com. Our nice January day leads to a generally cloudy, dry night tonight, down just below freezing. Clouds could last into the morning, but we should have mainly sunny skies tomorrow with high temperatures in the mid-40s, switching to clouds on Thursday in the low 40s, then sunshine again on Friday. 38 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Gun owners in California can no longer carry firearms into amusement parks, museums, churches, zoos, banks, public parks, or a whole slew of other places, even even if they have a concealed carry permit. Those restrictions are part of a new state law that took effect yesterday, and it is already facing scrutiny in the courts. Last month, a U.S. U.S. District Judge blocked the law from taking effect, calling it, quote, repugnant to the Second Amendment. But a federal appeals court put a temporary hold on that ruling over the weekend, allowing the law to proceed for now. Let's bring in Adam Winkler to talk this through. He's professor of law at UCLA and author of the book Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Adam Winkler, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. Where can concealed carry permit holders still carry guns in public in California with this law now in effect? Well, concealed carry permit holders can carry guns in public generally, but California has identified a list of 26 places that the law calls sensitive places like playgrounds and public parks and museums where you cannot bring your guns. What gun owners say, however, is that when you add up all the different 26 places that are deemed sensitive, Effectively, it's impossible for uh, someone who has a permit to carry firearms to bring their guns anywhere. We mentioned this law is already facing all kinds of hurdles in the courts. In California, where does it go next? What are you watching for? I think in California, we're really looking to the courts to provide some final guidance as to what kinds of gun laws we can have. California has been at the forefront of gun safety regulation for decades. But with the new strength and protections for the Second Amendment coming from the U.S. Supreme Court, a lot of California's laws and innovations are open to question. Lawmakers really need the certainty that comes from better Supreme Court guidance on what kind of gun laws are allowed under the Second Amendment and what kind of gun laws are not. Well, that prompts my next question, which is, is this law, like so many others, it seems these days, likely to end up at the Supreme Court? It's always hard to know whether any particular law will go before the Supreme Court, but one thing is clear. The Supreme Court needs to provide guidance on what kinds of sensitive places guns can be prohibited from. The court has said that guns can be banned from sensitive places, but hasn't made clear what makes a place sensitive 
and what are the exact places where lawmakers can restrict guns? So when you hear the criticism that I that I cited as I was introducing you, uh, the district court judge saying this law is repugnant to the Second Amendment, what do you think? The district judge's ruling was not wholly surprising, given the new test that the Supreme Court says gun laws must meet to be constitutionally permissible. Under the Supreme Court's recent Second Amendment rulings, the court insists that a gun law today resemble the gun laws of the 17 and 1800s. And truth be told, we didn't have restrictions in the 17 and 1800s on guns in playgrounds or zoos or museums. As a result, applying this new test under the Second Amendment makes it very difficult to justify some of these restrictions on sensitive places that California has adopted. Now, I want to note this law that has just kicked in is one of of a number of new gun laws that are going into effect this week in California. Just briefly, what are some of the others? Well, Gavin Newsom, the California governor, has made gun safety regulation a real centerpiece of his political agenda. Uh, He's backed ballot measures to mandate background checks for ammunition purchases and laws to limit high-capacity magazines and military-style assault rifles. In 2023, Newsom signed into law more than 20 new gun safety measures, including laws raising the age to carry a firearm in public to 21, increasing the training required for concealed carry permits, and a new tax on firearms and ammunition. And are these other laws also facing scrutiny in the courts? The one thing that's certain is that any new gun law that lawmakers adopt will be challenged in court under the Second Amendment. The Supreme Court's new test that requires gun laws to be evocative of the gun laws of the 17 and 1800s makes it very difficult to justify any new innovations in the world of gun policy. UCLA law professor Adam Winkler, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. They're calling it superhero fatigue. 2023 was the year cracks showed in Marvel's armor. Audiences did not flock to see Ant-Man or the Marvels, or for that matter, to DC's Flash or Aquaman. But that did not keep Hollywood from making $2 billion more than it did the year before. Critic Bob Mondello wonders if 2023 might be the year that broke the movie mold. Come back with me for a moment to July 19th. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Not a superhero in sight, and yet movies are all anyone can talk about. A hot pink comedy and a brooding biopic... This is a national emergency. ...have been linked in the public mind, and Hollywood's rulebook has flown out the window. Keep everyone there until it's done. These are not star vehicles or pre-sold franchises. No spandex, no animation, no streaming. You have to go to a theater. And people are lining up, tens of millions of people. For a few blissed out weeks, movies are the dominant art form again. Okay, ladies, let's do this! All because Hollywood has done what people have been saying for years that it should. Program something unexpected, something that isn't a sequel, something that makes seeing it in a theater with other people sound more appealing than sitting at home and streaming it in private. Three months later, that happened again. This time it was a pop star, Taylor Swift, bypassing movie studios and selling her concert film directly to theater owners. She and they made so much money in just a few weekends that cinemas are now looking at all sorts of alternative entertainments, from sports to stage shows. A filmed version of the live stage production of the Broadway musical Waitress made $5 million last month. (laughs) 
Marvel and DC, meanwhile, have been doing some serious soul-searching. Instead of each fielding four or five big-budget superhero releases in 2024, they've radically cut back. Partly that's about strike-related production delays, but it's also about dwindling box office, all of which suggests a path that Hollywood could take. There is a model because something similar happened back in the 1960s. The most powerful motion picture entertainment of all time. Studios had been chasing audiences with epics and musicals that kept getting bigger and more expensive, and audiences got bored and shifted to scruffy indie flicks like Easy Rider and Midnight Cowboy. I'm walking here! And then they shifted to a whole new generation of filmmakers, Kubrick, Spielberg, Lucas, Coppola, who had a different idea of what a movie could look like. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. I've got your R2 unit. I'm here with Ben Kenobi. Ben Kenobi? Where is he? Come on. It took the audience pointing the way. Scruffy indies and genre mashups had been around for a while. They'd just never been big box office. And today is much the same. Woman-directed films, serious biopics, concert movies are nothing new. They're just newly in vogue and also in the pipeline. So you'll be seeing more of them. Redemption song. When you write that? All my life. This is a case in point. A Bob Marley, heavy on the concerts, biopic. It's called One Love, and it'll open on Valentine's Day. I'm Bob Mandela. And you're listening to All Things Considered. The American Library Association says challenges to books on their shelves are up sharply in recent years, and in the cultural battle over what information should be publicly available, some librarians are losing their jobs. In Colorado, one librarian fought back. Colorado Public Radio's Matt Bloom has her story. Brookie Parks started working in the teen section of a local public library in Erie, Colorado in 2019. The 49-year-old mom of two got to talk to kids every day and help them discover new books. I loved it. It was probably my dream job. As a part of her work, she launched an anti-racism workshop and what she called the Read Woke Book Club, focused on LGBTQ-themed books. Soon, the library district got complaints from two local parents about their titles, and managers canceled her workshop and club. Parks was shocked. And I said, well, I don't understand why we're going to rename an entire book club just because two members of our entire community don't like the word woke. That's the very definition of censorship. The library board also passed a new policy that discouraged, quote, controversial events. Parks pushed back in public meetings. Action, she said, led to the district firing her after more than two years on the job. And they said, we just feel like you're not taking responsibility for any of this, and so your services are no longer needed. The next month, she filed a discrimination complaint with the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and Colorado State Civil Rights Commission, and she filed a lawsuit. But she hoped to prove her firing was discriminatory before taking her case to court. Her employer, the High Plains Library District, said they canceled Parks' programs to rework their titles because they promoted an agenda. Here's District Director Matthew Hort at a board meeting in December. We're not restricting, we're not censoring information. What we're doing is we're trying to present it in the way we can have a discussion. But after a year of investigating her case, Colorado's Civil Rights Commission ruled Parks' firing was illegal discrimination. 
and this fall, the library district settled Park's lawsuit against them before it went to court for $250,000. Iris Halpern is her lawyer. It sends a message out that there are consequences, financial consequences, and we can put guardrails up against things like censorship and discrimination. Halpern is also representing librarians from Texas and Wyoming in similar cases. What we're seeing is these terminations are backfiring within the communities where they happen. The American Library Association recorded more than 700 attempts to ban books or censor library programming around racial or LGBTQ issues, the most on record. President Emily Drabinsky says park settlement victory is likely the first of many legal challenges. This is a big win and it's an exciting one and it buoys the rest of us in the field, I think to learn about her fight and her win. For Parks, the victory came at a cost. She was unemployed for eight months and had to get help from an online fundraiser to pay her bills. And without that, I probably would have lost my house. She's now working again, this time at an academic library at the University of Denver. I know I, I sacrificed my dream job, but I can lay down and sleep at night knowing that I did the right thing. As a part of her legal settlement, a lot changed at her former library. Librarians now get a chance to veto program cancellations, and a new policy states inclusive and diverse programming is encouraged. For NPR News, I'm Matt Bloom. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR in about 15 minutes, Hamas has confirmed the death of one of its senior leaders in a blast in Beirut. Lebanese state media is attributing the killing to an Israeli drone strike. Israel has not confirmed this. Checking sports, Celtics and Bruins both have a work night tonight. Celts are out in Oklahoma City to play the Thunder. Bruins are also on the road in Columbus, Ohio to meet the Blue Jackets. The Bruins start at 7. The Celtics start at 8 o'clock. Never too soon to start thinking about baseball. Red Sox spring exhibition season tickets go on sale Friday morning at 10. Then truck day is Monday when the Sox equipment truck leaves Fenway to make the long haul to JetBlue Park in Fort Myers. The Sox first preseason game is February 24th. This is 90.9 WBUR clouds tonight, overcast early tomorrow, then the sunshine burns through temperatures in the mid 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. And Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 22nd, semesteroff.com. I'm Robin Young. Colorado Republicans were the ones who filed suit to get former President Trump excluded from that ballot. Lead plaintiff Norma Anderson will join us to explain why she believes her party's leading candidate does not deserve to be president. She says, among other things, Trump is too close to Russia's Putin. That's next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Well, it was a very strange day, one of the strangest days in my life. 
On the morning of October 7th, as Hamas launched its attack on Israel, killing around 1,200 people and taking 240 hostage, poet Mossab Abu Toha was getting ready for his job teaching English in Gaza. Everyone was just looking outside the window and wondering what is going on. Eventually, videos of Hamas militants attacking nearby Israeli cities started circulating on social media. Immediately, Abu Toha's confusion turned into fear. What would Israel's response look like? The response has been one of the deadliest and most destructive military campaigns in recent history. Nearly three months into the war, which Israel says is aimed at destroying Hamas, more than 21,000 people in Gaza have been killed, according to the health ministry there. Tens of thousands more injured, millions more displaced from their homes. So on October 12th, the Israeli army dropped some leaflets on, on, on my city, Beit Lahia, as ordering us to evacuate our houses. So Abu Toha and his family left for Jabalia refugee camp, joining his grandparents. A few days after they evacuated their house, it was bombed. Then airstrikes leveled an entire neighborhood in Jabalia. We had to run, not because I want to save my life, but I want to put my children and also my wife in a safer place because I'm responsible for their safety. This time, they found refuge in a United Nations where UNRWA school turned shelter. That's where they stayed until receiving word that their names had made it onto the list of people allowed to cross into Egypt. We took a donkey cart and we headed uh, on the Salah al-Din Street in the hope of reaching the Rafah border crossing. So in midway, about hundreds, uh, maybe thousands of people were standing in the street. And there was an Israeli tank in the, in the middle of the street. And I saw two soldiers on the tank. And there were some other soldiers on my right, about six soldiers pointing their guns at us. When I passed by the, the, the tank, I could hear an Israeli soldier calling people uh, walking in the line by their description. When he called out uh, to me, he said, the, the young man with a black backpack and a red-haired boy Talking about you and your son there. Yes, so the red-haired boy is my son, American son, Mustafa. Put the boy down and come here. And by the way, I was carrying my son in one, in one arm, and in the other uh, hand, I was holding his American passport. I mean, I, would, I was thinking, oh, they would see the American passport, and they would just allow us uh, to go smoothly. But that's not what happened. No, it, it wasn't what happened. So I dropped my son, I dropped my bags, and I was separated from my family. Mm. And then I joined the line of the people who were called before me. And the calling continued. They called for some girls, for some women, some old people. It's not only young people like me, 31 years year old, but there were some people in their 60s. What happened next? They started calling our names. Then, so the, the, the soldier who was calling to me had another soldier pointing his gun at me. And then two by two, they were asking us to walk with our arms raised, and then to turn right. So I, as I turned right along with the other person, there was a second Israeli jeep with two snipers behind the hood and with a third one holding a megaphone. And he asked us for our names and then our ID numbers. And he, then he said, remove your clothes. I removed all my clothes except for my boxer shorts. And then waited for a few seconds. Then he said, why did you stop? Continue. And then he ordered me to take off my boxer shorts. And that was the first time in my life I was naked in front of a stranger. Um, 
And then he asked me about the, the documents I had, the passports. I said, right. this is uh, my son's American passport, and these are our passports. We are going to the Rafah border crossing. It's, and he said, I mean, in Arabic, Uskut ya shut up, son of a... And then I was uh, asked to wear my clothes again. And then I was later handcuffed and blindfolded. One of the Israeli soldiers uh, who was put, putting my jacket and, uh, and my watch uh, in, in a plastic bag, uh, he saw my wallet in my jacket and he said, Onra. I said in Arabic, yeah, naam, ana muallim. Yes, I'm a teacher. And he said, hey, son of a shut up. And then I was taken, uh, I mean, so, a soldier grabbed me from the back of my neck and he pushed me forward as if I was a, a sheep. And then he put me down to sit on my knees and a soldier started to speak to me he said, you are a Hamas activist. I said, really, I'm a Hamas activist? No, that's not true. I said, do you have any proof that I am a Hamas activist? Do you have any photo, any video, any satellite image that shows I am a Hamas activist? And then he slapped me across the face. He said, me, you give me the proof. It was dehumanizing. It was a humiliating experience. I was kicked in my stomach. I was kicked in my face by Israeli soldiers who have no idea who I am. Musab Abu Toa says he was then driven to a facility in Israel where he describes being blindfolded and beaten during an interrogation. After more than 50 hours in Israeli custody, Abu Toha says he was released. In response to questions about Abu Toha's detention, the Israeli Defense Forces told NPR, quote, detainees are treated in line with international standards, including necessary checks for concealed weapons. The IDF prioritizes detainee dignity and will review any deviations from protocols. We are telling these stories because we don't need, we don't want them to happen again, not to us, not to others. We need to live in peace. This is what the Palestinian people are asking for. I mean, if other people are okay with, with what is happening to us, to happen to them, I mean, then we are fine with it. But if you don't feel okay with this happening to you, why, why, why are you okay with it happening to us here? I cannot imagine being either in your position in the conditions you've described to us or being in the position of your wife who... Yeah. did not know what had happened to you and was separated from you with with your children. And I know that you didn't know it at the time, but your wife was working for your release, calling friends of yours yeah. around the world. They demanded that you be let go, and you were ultimately reunited with your wife, your children. Mm. What was that like? Well, I was praying all the time. I never stopped praying to God to keep me and my family safe and alive. I knew that the whole world would oppose the bad treatment of me. I mean, because I have many friends in the West and here I'm, I'm, I'm asking the whole world, do you know that there are other people who are as talented as I am, who are as smart as I am? I mean, my, my life is not more precious than the lives of many other people. I mean, survival is not an individual act. It is a collective one. I'm not surviving because I'm here safe with my wife and kids in Cairo. No, I'm not surviving. I will feel safe when everyone in Gaza, my, my, my wife, my, my parents' family, my family, my friends, my neighbors, my students, about whom I have no information. I need to know that these people are safe. Masab Abu Toha wrote about his experience for The New Yorker. Thank you, and I hope that you're able to get in contact with your family soon. 
Thank you so much. And I hope my voice can be heard by as many people as possible. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Parents, join us Monday, January 8th at City Space in Boston for conversation with Jack Zhang, chef and stay-at-home dad, whose viral videos of cooking for his two-year-old son have inspired a new cookbook. You can get tickets at wbur.org slash events. It's 4.59. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A top official with Hamas has been killed in an explosion in Lebanon. Hamas says the blast was caused by a drone strike by Israel. Israel has not taken responsibility for the attack. The latest from the Middle East is coming up. Today is Tuesday, January 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the first black president of Harvard is stepping down after six months on the job. Much of it spent facing accusations of plagiarism and fending off criticism over her congressional testimony about fighting anti-Semitism on campus. And Kevin McCarthy is no longer a member of Congress, but his old district needs a successor. This is a chance for the, the Central Valley to change course. Kevin McCarthy has dictated California Republican politics now for decades. The former House Speaker's departure, however, has unleashed a political feeding frenzy with 10 candidates vying for his seat. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A senior official of Hamas, the militant Palestinian group, has been killed in what is believed to be an Israeli airstrike in the Lebanese capital. As NPR's Jane Raff reports, the killing would be the first since Israeli leaders announced at the start of the war in Gaza they would target Hamas leaders in other countries. Hamas announced the killing of Salah al-Aruri on its Al-Aqsa television channel in what it called a Zionist strike. Lebanon's state-run news agency said the blast in one of Beirut's southern suburbs was an Israeli drone strike which killed four people. Aruri was one of the founders of the Hamas military wing. Israel vowed after a Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th that they would assassinate leaders of the organization in any country they found them. Lebanon's powerful Hezbollah militia, backed by Iran, has said if Israel did kill Hamas leaders in Lebanon, it would retaliate. Hezbollah and Israel have so far been attacking each other in a strip across the Lebanese border since the war in Gaza began. 
Jane Araf, NPR News, Amman, Jordan. Harvard's President Claudine Gay has resigned. It comes after a month of controversy over her response to combating campus anti-Semitism and allegations of plagiarism in her own academic work. NPR's Laura McGawkey has more. Calls for Claudine Gay to resign began after her December 5th testimony on Capitol Hill, where critics say she refused to condemn hate speech. If the context in which that language is used amounts to bullying and harassment, then we take we take action against it. In the weeks following, conservative news outlets surfaced dozens of plagiarism allegations in Gay's academic work. Now, in a statement, Gay writes, quote, It has become clear that it is in the best interests of Harvard for me to resign so that our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge. Gay's tenure as Harvard's first black president and second female president was short. She took office in July. Lauren Migaki, NPR News, Washington. Shipping company Maersk says it's halting cargo traffic through the Red Sea until further notice. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the move highlights the tensions in the vital shipping corridor. Oil prices inched higher today on renewed concerns about shipping traffic in the Red Sea. Over the weekend, U.S. helicopters sank three small vessels carrying Houthi rebels who attacked a Maersk container ship. Several oil tankers have opted not to chance the Red Sea passage, instead taking the long way around the southern tip of Africa. While crude while prices are higher, the retail price of gasoline continues to fall. AAA says the average price of regular gas is now $3.10 a gallon, 14 cents lower than this time last month. The consulting company McKinsey has agreed to pay $78 million to settle complaints that it helped fuel the opioid epidemic. McKinsey did marketing work for the company behind OxyContin. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 25 points. The Nasdaq fell more than 200 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. We've got more now on the resignation today of Harvard President Claudine Gay. Some Harvard faculty are angry about her stepping down. Political science professor Ryan Eno says Gay's congressional testimony last month over anti-Semitism on campus was, quote, a trap. This is somebody being forced out of a position by mob rule. Regardless of what you think of the merits of her positions on international issues or what you think of the accusations against her around plagiarism, those are all things that need careful debate. And this was certainly not an example of that. Gay also faced increasing scrutiny over potential plagiarism in her previous academic work. With the primary election barely two months away, we're getting a look at how the state's presidential primary ballot is shaping up. Democratic Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips, Republican former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and Libertarian Attorney Jacob Hornberger of Texas will appear atop their party's ballots on May 5th. Those candidates were among the three Democrats, seven Republicans, and five Libertarians whose names were chosen at random by Secretary of State Bill Galvin. Prominent members of Congress from Massachusetts are calling on President Biden to take Cuba off the list of state sponsors of terrorism. In a letter, the lawmakers note that President Trump had put Cuba back on the list in his final days in office. They say the move was vindictive and politically motivated. President Obama had taken Cuba off the list back in 2015 after a comprehensive review found the designation without merit. Local ski areas are pleased with the forecast calling for snow in Massachusetts this coming weekend. But even without a big winter storm, WBRS and Indoor Enromeca reports that ski mountains have a solution to stay up and running. Many ski resorts in Massachusetts make their own snow. They've had to adapt as climate change has impacted snowfall. Molly Ross is the general manager at Blue Hill Ski Area. Whenever we can get natural snowfall, that's great. But the ski industry as a whole has come a really long way with snowmaking. And all of the local areas make their own snow. 
So whether or not there's natural snow doesn't necessarily mean whether or not we'll be open. Ross says Blue Hill Ski Area plans to make snow all week and open this weekend. Wachusett Mountain says 80 percent of its slopes are already open. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. The city of Worcester has appointed its next youth poet laureate. Worcester Technical High School student Serenity Johnson will hold the post. She says she hopes to use her platform to encourage engagement in the literary arts. She is the city's third youth poet laureate. In the forecast, 36 degrees in the Boston area, our nice January day, leads to a generally cloudy, dry night tonight down just below freezing. Clouds could last into the morning, but we should have a mainly sunny day with high temperatures in the mid-40s tomorrow. Again, 36 in Boston at 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Hamas officials say a blast in the Lebanese capital Beirut has killed one of their most senior commanders. Lebanese state media attributes the killing to an Israeli drone strike. Israel has not confirmed this. Meanwhile, fierce fighting continues in Gaza as Israeli troops strike targets in the center and in southern cities there. Health officials in Gaza report that some 22,000 people have been killed since the start of the war, a war which is now in its 13th week. NPR's Kerry Khan is in Tel Aviv. Hey there, Kerry. Hi, good evening. Hi. What more can you tell us about the killing of this um, senior Hamas leader in Lebanon tonight? Well, according to Lebanese media, a blast killed Saleh al-Arari in a Beirut suburb, and he was one of Hamas's most senior leaders. Arari was in a meeting when the blast occurred, according to Lebanese state TV. Three other Hamas officials were killed, and as many as 11 were injured. And that's according to the official state press there. Hamas con- confirmed and condemned his death on its official Telegram account. And how big a deal might this be? What would the repercussions be? This is significant, not only due to its prominence in Hamas, but also that the strike took place in Lebanon. Orari was one of the founders of Hamas's military wing. He had spent time in Israeli prisons and after his release was elected to Hamas's political bureau in 2017. In recent years, he had spent much of his time in Lebanon and he fostered closer ties between Hamas and Lebanon's powerful Iranian-backed militia, Hezbollah. The question now is what response will come from the assassination, especially from Hezbollah, which has been engaging in daily, daily cross-border fire along Israel's northern border. Lebanon's prime minister blamed Israel for the killing and accused Israel of trying to drag Lebanon into, quote, a new phase of the war. Okay, well, let's turn back to that war, the war underway in Gaza. What is the latest on the fighting. It's been very intense in the center and south of the country, especially around the city of Khan Yunus, with airstrikes continuing even in the south where Israel has told people to go to be safe. Um, today I was able to reach someone in Khan Yunus, and I want to play you a little bit of that interview of him. He is 48-year-old Akrim al-Satari, a father of three. He is an English language interpreter there. He has already had to move twice from his home at the orders of Israel's military. He's now in a house, he says, of a friend with a total of 25 people living there. He said that every day he is filled with every emotion you can think of. Sometimes, sometimes I'm scared for my children. 
sometimes anger, sometimes fear, some other times despair. And this whole thing is, is what is really molding our life in the meantime. He says bombs go off and the house he's in just rocks. He described one that hit this morning. He's fearful the Israeli military is going to give him another order to leave. And he's been trying, he says, to find someplace further south in Rafa to go. But the city there is so overcrowded and he's found nothing. The U.N. has repeatedly made warnings about the overcrowding in Gaza south with severe sanitation and water shortages, limited food and disease outbreaks. Ah, just such a difficult situation. I I want to ask about news that we were reporting on last night, Carrie. This is the news that Israel has begun to move some troops out of Gaza. How significant a shift is that in Israeli strategy? Israel says it is beginning to move troops out of Gaza, five brigades in all. But Defense Minister Yoav Gallant was in Gaza today and he told the troops that, quote, the feeling that we will stop soon is incorrect. Without a clear victory, we will not be able to live in the Middle East. And Pierre's Kerry Khan reporting from Tel Aviv. Thanks, Kerry. You're welcome. Sunday was Kevin McCarthy's last day on the job. Today, the eight-term Republican from California woke up a regular civilian after a tumultuous year. McCarthy reached the highest position in Congress as Speaker of the House before being ousted just months later after efforts by members of his own party. Now, someone has to fill his shoes, and the race is on to replace the one-time Republican leader in his Bakersfield district. As KVPR's Joshua Yates Yeager reports the contest is shaping up to be just as chaotic as McCarthy's brief speakership. Republicans in Bakersfield didn't expect to be in this position, but here they are. Um, I'm horribly disappointed. Greg Perone is president of the Greater Bakersfield Republican Assembly. After watching Bakersfield boy Kevin McCarthy rise to Speaker of the House, the group is weighing their options for a totally new representation. And then if you look at the fiasco of who's going to run to replace him, it, it just created a bigger mess. Instead of doing the honorable thing, which is, I'm not going to seek re-election. McCarthy's departure has unleashed a political feeding frenzy here in the district. Ten candidates will duke it out for McCarthy's seat. One of them, Assemblyman Vince Fong, was a McCarthy staffer and has his endorsement. But McCarthy's tenuous succession plan has created problems for his heir apparent. The Secretary of State has announced Vince Fong will not be allowed to run for the 20th Congressional District. That's because the two-term assemblyman's name is already on the ballot for re-election to the State House. A Sacramento judge, though, ruled in the candidate's favor, striking down a century-old law that prevents candidates from running for two offices on the same ballot. Secretary of State Shirley Weber says she'll appeal the ruling. All the attention has put a bullseye on Fong for other candidates. Vince should not be in this race. David Giglio hoped to unseat McCarthy even before his resignation. That's why he's here, making his case to the Bakersfield Republican Assembly. This is a chance for the, the Central Valley to change course. Kevin McCarthy has dictated um, California Republican politics now for decades. Fong will have a distinct advantage with McCarthy's weight and war chest behind him. McCarthy leaves Congress with some $10 million in the bank. But before anyone can choose who they want to take the seat in 2025, the district will hold a separate special election to fill the rest of McCarthy's term, an election that hasn't even been scheduled yet. For NPR News, I'm Joshua Yeager in Bakersfield, California. 
Harvard President Claudine Gay has resigned after just six months on the job. Today's surprise announcement comes amid multiple allegations of plagiarism in her work. Gay is Harvard's first black president, and she's also been under fire for her congressional testimony last month about anti-Semitism on campus. NPR's Tovia Smith has been following this story and joins us now. And Tovia, can you just catch us up on the latest here? Yeah, uh, well, this certainly came as a surprise to a lot of people at Harvard. Um, Backing up here for a second, as you mentioned, Gay first started facing criticism for how she was handling complaints of campus anti-Semitism and for her testimony to members of Congress last month um, when when she said that uh, calls for genocide against Jews may or may not violate campus rules. But she still had the full support of Harvard's governing board to stay in the job, unlike UPenn's president, Liz McGill, who also testified and resigned under pressure. The third college president who testified, MIT's Sally Kornbluth, is so far still holding on. But the plagiarism allegations brought Gay's case to a different level. Um, As she noted in her resignation statement today, it was difficult beyond words, she said, and distressing to have doubts cast on not only her commitment to confronting hate, but also on her upholding scholarly rigor. And uh, Harvard, uh, we should say, did acknowledge inadequate citations in some of her work, but still stood behind her until it seems the number of allegations apparently became too much. Gay said in her statement, it has become clear that it's in the best interest of Harvard for her to resign so she wouldn't be a distraction. And the board basically underscored that same idea in its statement. Right. Tovia, so far, what kind of reaction have you been hearing to this news? Well, some of uh, Gay's harshest critics are certainly glad to uh, hear the news. I spoke to Leora Rez, who's executive director of the group Stop Antisemitism, who says she welcomes the news. We're absolutely thrilled, good riddance. And unfortunately, it took a supplemental issue to push this over the edge. The anti-Semitism factor should have been enough. However, it wasn't, but we'll take it. Others who were for Gay's ouster were quick to note that they see the problem of hate speech on campus as bigger than any one person. Um, they see it as a much deeper cultural issue that needs to be addressed. And that sentiment was echoed today by Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, whose questioning of President Gay in that hearing went viral. She said today on social media that her committee would continue its oversight of what she called the problems at Harvard and what she called the, quote, woke agenda and political bias at Harvard. And other schools. And Tovia, what about gays defenders? I mean, there were these petitions circulating among hundreds of faculty and students to keep her after the backlash to that testimony we were talking about. What have you heard from those folks? Well, many who opposed her ouster, it's worth noting, were less about defending her handling of the situation or her performance in Congress and more about resisting outside pressure on academic institutions. They bristled at the idea of uh, donors threatening to pull their money and politicians inserting themselves into what's going on on campus. And uh, they called her resignation today a dangerous threat to their independence and uh, to free and open inquiry on campuses. And I should also say many of Gay's defenders are pointing to the role of race in her ouster. Um, she's the first ever black president, as you mentioned. Um, here's how Ryan Enos, a government professor at Harvard, put it. If you don't think race played a factor in that, then I've got a bridge to sell you, 
right? Because, you know, there's a lot of university presidents and none of them came under the scrutiny she did. And of course, a lot of that's because she was the first black president at Harvard. And of course, race played a part in that. Gay herself alluded to that in her statement, noting the personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus, um, as she put it, and Harvard's board also pointed to what it called the racist vitriol. Um, but the board praised Gay's remarkable resilience and her, quote, insight, decisiveness, and empathy that were her hallmark. Um, now, uh, Provost and Chief Academic Officer Alan Garber will take over as interim president while they look okay. for a permanent president. NPR's Tovia Smith, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. First trading day of the new year saw the Dow up, but not by much, less than a tenth of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ both lost territory today. The S&P was down more than a half percent. The NASDAQ gave up more than one and six tenths percent. Coming up on All Things Considered, the world's oldest cello, a 17th century harpsichord, and thousands of other musical instruments have all found their way to a small Midwestern city in South Dakota. That story and much more coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson. The classic Moby Dick story is told anew with captivating life-size and whale-sized puppetry. January 23rd to 29th, artsemerson.org. And Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Clouds should dominate tonight, about 28 degrees for a low. We could wake up to clouds tomorrow, but then the day should eventually turn out mainly sunny. Temperatures back in the mid-40s. Then a couple of change-ups for the rest of the work week. Cloudy skies moving in for Thursday, and then sunshine is back for Friday. Should be a cooler day on Friday. Temperatures in the 30s. 36 degrees now in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday. With AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Hollywood makes movie after movie about so-called great men. You know the kind. Those grand historical figures who often, against great odds, achieve the extraordinary. In 2023, we saw Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer about the so-called father of the atomic bomb. We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means. If the Nazis have a bomb. Ridley Scott's Napoleon about the French conqueror. I'm destined for greatness. But those in power will only see me as a sword. And Bradley Cooper's maestro about the legendary American composer Leonard Bernstein. He can be the first great American conductor. 
These films have received critical praise and may even receive Oscar nominations, as stories about historical male figures often do. But writing for the website Vox, Esther Zuckerman says 2023's crop of great man movies stand out. So we called her up to talk about it. Esther, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. So Esther, I mean, I think that we've all seen movies about important male figures, but for our listeners, Mm -hmm. can you just break down some of the tropes of a great man movie? What should we expect to see when we're watching this kind of film? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the typical biopic, you usually see the highs and lows. There's usually a triumphant ending where we're supposed to sort of, you know, revel in this person's supposed greatness. So Esther, what are some movies that come to mind that you think really exemplify the great man movie? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, obviously Hollywood is littered with these biopics. Um, Two sort of immediately jump to mind as really sort of fascinating examples. Um, I think Amadeus is one, the Milos Forman film about Mozart. How good is he, this Mozart? He's remarkable. He's an unprincipled, spoiled, conceited brat. I'm a vulgar man, but I assure you, my music is not. Which sort of famously focuses on the jealousy of his competitor, Salieri, sort of as, you know, this point counterpoint in terms of, you know, talking about this idea of greatness. The other one, which I just think is so sprawling and, you know, meaty is Spike Lee's Malcolm X. These are the questions you and I have to ask. How did we get this mind? You're not an American. You're an African who happens to be an American. You have to understand the difference. We didn't come over on the the Nita, the Pinta, and the the whatchamacallit. We didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. Here he singles out Oppenheimer, Maestro, Napoleon, and also Ferrari, which is about the founder of the famed car manufacturer. And when you watch their trailers, you might think that these are more films that glorify the achievements of the men who are at the centers of these stories. You have watched these films. How true is that? I don't think that's necessarily true this year. Um, I think all of the filmmakers this year who are tackling these stories with various levels of successes are sort of trying to work against the familiarity of these narratives in a certain way. I think at times they definitely fall into some of the tropes that we usually see, especially when it comes to the women in these men's lives. But I think all of them have an element of both praise and sort of if not criticism, then maybe skepticism about these heroes and the places that they exist in society. Of these films, which do you think is the most subversive? I mean, I think Oppenheimer is probably the greatest achievement um, of all of these films. I'm not sure if subversive is necessarily the right word for any of them, but I do think that the way... Christopher Nolan is taking you inside the not just genius of J. Robert Oppenheimer, but also the guilt um, and the hubris of him, I think is, you know, bordering on radical. Um, Obviously, I think he's the most controversial of any of these men um, that we're talking about. But I think the way the film accomplishes it, and especially structurally sort of in back and forth between the black and white um, of this hearing and the present of the, the lead up to the Trinity test is really astounding. 
I want to talk a little bit now about the women in these movies. I mean, one Mm -hmm. of the staples of these movies is this role of an aggrieved wife. And oftentimes the wife is fighting for space in the man's life, but he's too busy out there making history. And it's often, (laughs) I've got to say, a pretty thankless seeming part for the actresses who play these wives. Do these movies that you've written about, do they do any better with that role? I mean, I think it's interesting. I think if you look at Maestro, you know, Bradley Cooper envisioned his movie about Leonard Bernstein as the story of a marriage. So it is a movie about Leonard Bernstein's marriage to Felicia Montalegre, who was an actress in her own right. And I think it's trying to get at the difficulty of being married to a man like Leonard Bernstein, not just the fact that he had affairs with men, but also in the fact that, you know, he had this sort of irrepressibility, which made him, you know, a captivating figure, but made it very hard to be married to him. Let's not make excuses. He didn't fail me. It's Felicia. No, it's, it's my own arrogance to think I could survive on what he could give. And Carrie Mulligan does a fantastic job, but I think the thing you're always still running into is that it is a, still a movie about a woman sort of fighting for her place alongside this man. And I think the, the, the screenplay makes it more equal than other films do, but it is about this power imbalance. So big picture, what would you say these movies say about how Hollywood is approaching stories about important historical figures, especially men? Yeah, I mean, I think Hollywood knows that these are captivating stories. And I think there's a reason we focus on these figures, because for good or ill, we are still fascinated with them. But I think Hollywood, or at least maybe not Hollywood, I would go so far to say, but like interesting directors like Christopher Nolan, like Bradley Cooper, like Ridley Scott and like Michael Mann are trying all in their own ways to dig beneath the surface of why these men fascinate us and get to something more core to them. I mean, I think one of the things that you can see all of these filmmakers doing is sort of using the tools of these people's geniuses to shape the film. You see it in Oppenheimer sort of using, you know, his visions of physics. You see it in Maestro in the way it uses music. I mean, Ferrari has these car chasing sequences, which I think are, you know, the best in the film, which sort of get at the deadliness of this passion. Napoleon, I think, uses war in a similar way. So I think you can sort of see how they're trying to visually bring us into why we keep being enraptured by these people. Esther Zuckerman is an author and film critic. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. Thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes on All Things Considered, the Michigan Wolverines and Washington Huskies head to the National College Football Championship game in Houston. We'll have a preview coming up. And later, it took 20 years to get a piece of land in Georgia ready to host endangered woodpeckers. U.S. wildlife officials have now approved moving some of the birds to the site. 
Both those stories and much more still ahead. Celtics and Bruins both have a work night tonight. Celts are out in Oklahoma City to play the Thunder. The Bruins are also on the road in Columbus, Ohio to meet the Blue Jackets. Bruins start at 7 tonight. The Celtics begin at 8. The time is 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, Playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. A family in El Paso, Texas, describes driving home from a visit to Mexico and being rammed by law enforcement officers in unmarked vehicles. They came in charging. As soon as I opened that door and I told them, this is just me and my family, their faces just changed drastically. One family caught up in a crackdown on smugglers. That's on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. No evidence of terrorism has been found in a vehicle crash in Rochester that left three dead, including the driver and nine others injured. The crash took place outside of a New Year's Eve concert by the jam band Mo. WXXI's Gino Finelli has our story. Michael Avery, 35 of Syracuse, traveled to Rochester last week, rented an SUV, and spent a day buying and filling gas canisters. It was just before 1 a.m. on January 1st, and the concert had just ended, when police say that he sped toward a crowd of people and crashed into an Uber, leaving a nearby parking lot. Contrary to some initial reports, police say Avery left no suicide note or journals before the crash. FBI Assistant Special Agent Jeremy Bell says the man's motive remains unknown. What I can tell you is, so far, we've uncovered no evidence of an ideology and no nexus to terrorism, either international or domestic. Investigators believe Avery suffered from undiagnosed mental health issues. For NPR News, I'm Gino Finelli in Rochester, New York. Hong Kong media mogul Jimmy Lai has pleaded not guilty to charges of collusion and sedition. It's the highest profile trial linked to a controversial national security law that Beijing imposed on the former British colony in 2020. And as NPR's John Ruich reports, analysts expect Lai to be convicted. Jimmy Lai has been charged with two counts of conspiring to collude with foreign forces under the national security law. Prosecutors say he made requests to foreign governments to impose sanctions on Hong Kong and Chinese officials to support the city's pro-democracy movement. He also faces a separate count of publishing seditious materials. Lai was an outspoken figure in Hong Kong's now largely defunct pro-democracy camp. He ran the territory's most popular newspaper, the Apple Daily, which regularly criticized the local and central government. He's already serving a five-year, nine-month sentence for fraud linked to the newspaper business. And if he's found guilty in the latest trial, he faces possible life in prison. John Ruich, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Harvard's President Claudine Gay is stepping down. In a letter today to the Harvard community, Gay calls it a difficult decision, but one that's in the best interest of the university. Gay's resignation comes four weeks after her controversial testimony before Congress over the rise of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on campus. Speaking today with NPR's Here and Now, WBUR's Max Larkin said the new year has brought new problems for Gay. I don't think it looked good that as the new year uh, ticked over that the Washington Free Beacon uh, conservative publication surfaced more plagiarism instances, allegedly, and that basically half of her academic work was sort of contaminated with that kind of charge. Larkin says despite initially standing by Gay, the mounting allegations of plagiarism may have caused Harvard's governing board to rethink its decision. 
Reaction is pouring in from the Harvard community following today's announcement. Harvard government professor Steve Levitsky was one of the original authors of a letter signed by hundreds of faculty members supporting Gay after her congressional testimony last month. Levitsky says her resignation over pressure from Congress and outside donors sets a dangerous precedent. The folks who carried this forward, who brought the anti-Semitism issue to a climax, and who then, after that failed, dug up the, the, the pleasures and stuff, are forces who have an agenda to assault and weaken elite universities. And yes, Harvard is obviously the principal, most prominent representative of elite universities. Gay intends to remain at Harvard in a faculty position. Harvard provost and chief academic officer Alan Garber will serve as interim president. Employees of the state's largest health care system are once again required to wear masks in clinical care settings. The new policy for Mass General Brigham workers went into effect today amid rising COVID-19 cases in the state. Patients and visitors at Mass General Brigham are strongly encouraged to wear masks while interacting with health care workers. A similar policy went into effect today at UMass Memorial Medical Group. And a new analysis is showing a 24 percent vacancy rate statewide at community human service providers. These workers serve people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, including autism. The Association for Developmental Disabilities Providers notes the vacancies are decreasing for day programs. They have gotten higher state reimbursement rates in recent months. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales. Think you know Jay Wu? From engineering to graphic design, let Johnson & Wales surprise you. More at jwu.edu. Got a waning moon tonight, increasing clouds, about 28 for a low. Tomorrow should see the sunshine move in gradually, rising to the mid-40s. Clouds should return for Thursday and then sunshine back for Friday. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Houston, we have a championship bout. That's Williams in motion. Low snap. Melrose stopped. Michigan makes a stand. Ewers loves it up, and it is incomplete. Washington hangs on and wins. McCall's from ESPN yesterday as the Michigan Wolverines defeated Alabama and the Washington Huskies beat Texas in their college football playoff semifinal games. Washington and Michigan square off for the national championship Monday in Houston. Nicole Auerbach was in Pasadena last night at the Rose Bowl, which required overtime, and she joins us now from Chicago. Hi, Nicole. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So, Nicole, what are your biggest takeaways from yesterday's big games? And I want to start with the Rose Bowl where you are. Well, both of them came down to the final play, which was unbelievable. We haven't had a national semifinal day like this during the college football playoff era, but the Rose Bowl came down to a team in Michigan beating Alabama the way that we usually see SEC teams beat their opponents. They were really physical at the line of scrimmage. They were tough, and J.J. McCarthy made some incredible throws with the game on the line to tie it in the final minutes to set up that overtime period, where, of course, as we heard, they got that final stop and secured the 
the win. And this is the first time that Michigan will be playing for a national championship since they started determining national championship <laughs> games with the BCS era. And what about the Sugar Bowl then? Well, the Sugar Bowl was incredible. We had two incredible quarterbacks in this game, but that one really came down to Michael Penix Jr., who is a super senior. He's had two season-ending injuries. He transfers from Indiana, and he just put on an absolute show. Him and those receivers that they have are doing some special stuff in college football this year, and they were able to do just enough in that defense to get one stop when they needed it at the end to get there. And so you have a team that a lot of people kept picking to lose along the way of the course of the season, continuing to win, and the Huskies get a chance to play for a national title too. I mean, there was a whole lot of criticism of the college football committee's picks this year. Undefeated Florida State got left out, but judging from what we've seen, did the committee get it right? Well, I was one of those people who believed that Florida State deserved a spot in the playoff, but the committee decided that they thought Alabama would give us a better game. And after seeing the two games that we just saw, it's hard to argue with that because they did pick the four best teams to play and give us two of the best games possible. And I feel for Florida State, I feel for the Seminoles. I think at full strength, they would have been right there with them with the four teams. But we just haven't seen a field this deep with this many true contenders. And I do think the committee members are probably sleeping a little better seeing the way that those two games played out. I can imagine. I mean, look, both Washington and Michigan are un defeated posting 14 and 0 records but they took two wildly different paths to get to this point can you tell us about one or two key factors behind these schools playoff pushes this year well, like I said, with Washington, the quarterback, Michael Penix Jr., has been such an integral piece to this, and he transferred to reunite with his former offensive coordinator at Indiana, now the head coach at Washington, and Kalen DeBoer has won at every single level that he has coached at. So they have done this really quickly in just a couple of years. It's the first Pac-12 team to play for a national championship since 2016-2017, and here they are actually playing for it all in the final year of that conference's yeah. existence the way that we know it. So that one has just been an incredible program rebuild and build with the right coach and the right key players. And then for Michigan, this has been a multi-year process. They got to the national semifinals the last two years, but could not get over the hump yeah. and started out real shaky in this game. There were a lot of special teams mistakes, but they were able to grind it out and be physical and be tough and, and, and run the ball too when they wanted to. And they could play kind of All an right. old style, old school style of football. And that is partially why people didn't think they could get here, but they finally but proved that they, they could But they did do it. indeed. Nicole Auerbach is senior writer with The Athletic and NBC Sports. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. For 50 years, the National Music Museum has been home to one of the world's most respected collections of instruments. You can track musical history from the world's oldest cello to one of Elvis's guitars through its exhibits in Vermilion, South Dakota. That's right. The National Music Museum is located in a town of just under 12,000 people in the southeast edge of South Dakota. Harvest Public Media's Elizabeth Rimbert went to take a look and a listen to some musical history. The National Music Museum is located just a few blocks north of Main Street in Vermilion. And on a recent afternoon, a group is congregating in one of the exhibit rooms where there is a gamelan. It's an Indonesian ensemble made up of many percussion instruments. The group ignores any do not touch signs and moves the gongs, drums, pots, and xylophones that sit across the room. The Vermilion locals aren't here to admire the instruments. They're here to play them. 
Faith Weber plays the Peking, which sort of looks like a small xylophone. After practice, she says she learned about gamelan during her time in the Navy. When she heard about a gamelan concert in Vermilion, she thought a traveling group was coming through town. So I came and I was just stunned to find out that instruments lived here in South Dakota. <laughs> We're so lucky. This gamelan is one of more than 14,000 instruments in the museum's collection. It's a treat for professional musicians to perform using some of the instruments here, like the world's oldest cello, built in the mid-1500s in Italy. Or a soprano saxophone made by Adolf Sax, who invented the instrument in the 1840s. Or a grand piano built in 1901 that was once the largest piano ever made. Dwight Vaught, the museum's director, knows what you're thinking. Why the National Music Museum is in Vermilion, South Dakota is probably our most asked question. He says the story all starts with a man named Arnie Larson who came to town with his collection of 2,500 instruments. It was 1966 and the university in Vermilion had hired Larson as a music professor. The new recruit came with a catch. When he was hired by the University of South Dakota, he said, do you have a place that I can store my instruments? And so they offered him a space. Arnie's son would lead the charge to turn the storage space into a museum, which officially opened its doors in 1973. Fifty years later, conservator Daryl Martin says the National Music Museum's collection is top three in the world, stacking up to institutions in Brussels and Paris. So it's the quality of the instruments over a wide range of instrument types. There's a 17th century harpsichord, there's a electric guitar from 20 years ago, and everything pretty much in, in between. During a tour, Martin walks up to one instrument, a small wooden keyboard painted in olive green. This is actually the oldest playable harpsichord in the world. With a bit of pleading, uh, I'm a really bad player, but I can He demonstrates what the world's oldest harpsichord sounds like. It was made in Naples probably around 1530. 500 years later, it's made its way to South Dakota. But if you can't make the trek to Vermilion, the National Music Museum presents exhibits and concert videos on its website. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Rumpert in Vermilion, South Dakota. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Wildlife conservation can mean working for years, not knowing if your efforts will make a difference. But as Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports, scientists there recently got to celebrate a milestone decades in the making. The Flint River is hidden and dark in the pre-dawn hours, hundreds of feet below Spruill Bluff in West Georgia where people with birding scopes and sturdy shoes have gathered, some from hours away. Okay, so we're getting ready to move out. Let me get your attention. Some, like Georgia Department of Natural Resources senior biologist Nathan Klaus, spent the early December night in the woods nearby. So thank you very much for being here. You know, I, you all know how much I value, hopefully, the role that you played, each, each one of you, in, in getting us to this place. This place is really an ecology and a goal, which many here helped Klaus recreate over 20 years. 
The group is here to release six federally endangered birds, red cockaded woodpeckers, into these hills. And it took 20 years to get the birds here because first Klaus and others had to sculpt the right forest. Joyce Klaus is Nathan's wife, and she's a wildlife scientist too. She says when he first brought her to places like Spruill Bluff, they were not much to see, at least to the ecologically informed eye. Oh, yeah, yeah. When uh, Nathan and I were first dating, it would have been 17 years ago, some of the places he brought me to that he was working on, I was just like, oh, that's nice, honey. <laughs> As a scientist, she wasn't so impressed. Nathan Klaus says there's a reason for that. The first photograph I have, it's a wall of sweet gum. Sweet gums are hardwoods and exactly the wrong trees for these woodpeckers. What they need are mature living pines for nesting. So Klaus got to work with a very old tool. Fire. Every other year for the last two decades, Klaus and a crew under his direction would set fires like this one, recorded in 2019. The fire killed hardwoods and encouraged pines to seed in these mountains. A few months ago, U.S. Fish and Wildlife said the landscape was finally right and okayed the site for woodpeckers. Six were captured at the Army's Fort Stewart in South Georgia. They made the more than 200-mile trip and are now closed up in human-made nesting boxes inside the pine trees. And Nathan Klaus says they may be on edge. You want to give them their space. They've already been through basically an alien abduction. So why move an endangered bird from the coast to the mountains? Bob Sargent is another Georgia DNR biologist. This is um, a case of not all your eggs in one basket, right? In this analogy, the eggs are birds. And the basket is the coastal plain where most red cockaded woodpeckers live and where more disaster strikes. Now we have, you know, an increase in the number of hurricanes, for instance, coming up through the Gulf. Like Hurricane Michael in 2018, it devastated pine forests. You can lose a lot of cavity trees and a lot of clusters all at once. In the future, red cockaded woodpeckers may be safer further north in these hills. The sun is rising when the screens trapping the birds in their new holes are yanked away. The birds bolt, only affording people like retired DNR biologist Jim Osier a glimpse. A glimpse of the rare birds was enough. I dreamed it, but I didn't think I'd see it. Yeah, I dreamed a lot of things that I didn't think I'd ever see. When Nathan Klaus returns to the site around Christmas, the birds are still here. Evidence of a dream fulfilled. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Upson County, Georgia. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, Donald Trump is appealing decisions to keep him off ballots in Maine and Colorado, while several other states consider legal reasons to keep Trump from appearing on the state primary ballots. That story and much more still to come. It's going to be a busy night in sports for the locals. Boston Bruins will be in Columbus, Ohio to take on the Blue Jackets. Face-off is at 7 p.m. Celtics will face the Thunder in Oklahoma City. Celtics are looking to improve on their league best 26-6 and record. Tip-off is set for 8 Eastern time. And never too soon to start thinking about baseball. Red Sox spring exhibition season tickets go on sale Friday morning at 10 o'clock. Then truck day is Monday when the Sox equipment truck leaves Fenway to make the long haul to JetBlue Park in Fort Myers. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property. 
at findmassmoney.gov. In the forecast, clear skies from today should give way to increasing cloudiness overnight tonight. A nice dry night. Temperatures about 28 degrees. Tomorrow may start up with clouds before sunshine eventually burns through. Could have a mostly sunny day tomorrow. Temperatures making it to the mid-40s. Then Thursday, clouds return. Temperatures just above 40 degrees. 36 degrees in Boston. I'm Robin Young. Colorado Republicans were the ones who filed suit to get former President Trump excluded from that ballot. Lead plaintiff Norma Anderson will join us to explain why she believes her party's leading candidate does not deserve to be president. She says, among other things, Trump is too close to Russia's Putin. That's next time, here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Maybe being more physically active is one of your New Year's resolutions. And a popular choice is to start running more. You don't really need equipment or a gym membership. You just get out and you go. But running can be intimidating. Maybe you've been told you're not a runner. Or you think you don't have the right body for it. And what I'm here to tell people is that you can run in the body that you have now. And you can do it with just... Something as simple as running for 15 seconds and walking for a minute. It's really about just getting your heart rate up. Martinez Evans is a runner and author of the book Slow AF Run Club, the ultimate guide for anyone who wants to run. NPR Life Kit host Mariel Seguera spoke with Evans to get his best advice for anyone who wants to get into running. What are some of the things that people might do to help their mindset as they start on this journey? You know, one of the things that a lot of people struggle with is their inner critic. A lot of people who come to me is, Martinez, I'm not a runner. And the voices in my head is telling me I'm not a runner. And I'm just afraid to to move forward. So one of the things that I found beneficial is to name that inner critic. Because most of the time, that inner critic and that inner voice is in your voice. So it's like you telling you that you don't deserve to do X, Y, and Z. So my inner critic's name is Otis. And like my critic's like, you're fat. You don't need to do this. You need to lose weight first. And I'm like, go sit down. I don't need that. And then what about affirmations? I, you have so many helpful ones in the book. You know, my favorite one is no struggle, no progress, right? This is something that I have tattooed on my wrist. Um, and then there's other things like one step at a time. Stay in the mile that you are in right now. You know, we can do hard things. Um, I think just telling yourself these mantras helps you rhythmically, but it also keeps you in line to continue to move forward. What kind of gear does somebody need before they go out to run? Not much. So the first thing that I always recommend new runners, definitely pick up a a new pair of running shoes, go to a running specialty store, and the word that I have in the book is called gait analysis or shoe fit, right? So if you go into one of these specialty running stores and you say, hey, I need a gait analysis or hey, I need a shoe fit, and they look at you like you have three heads growing out the side of your neck, that's not the place for you. And then the last thing I usually like to tell the people that I coach is don't wear cotton underwear or like don't wear cotton anything. Don't wear cotton socks. You'll get blisters and you'll start to get chafe in places where it will be extremely painful. And then 
once you have your gear, you go out for a jog, your first run. If you've never really run before, what do you do when you do you just start jogging? Like how long should you go for? So if you're going on your first run, you're going to go walk. You're going to walk for five minutes. This is where I tell people to like just do a full body scan. You know, are there parts in your body that's tight? You know, are these things that you might need to stretch up before you go run? Get those things out the way. Um, how are you feeling mentally? Maybe you need to readjust your, your mindset and your mental attitude, right? And then after those five minutes, you're going to pick up the pace. You're going to pick up their pace until you're, at, you're running at a pace where you're able to have a conversation with somebody. And you're going to do that for 15 seconds. And then after 15 seconds, you're going to stop. And you're going to walk for a minute. And you're going to feel like, whoa, that wasn't hard. And I think I can do more. That's great. You're going to continue to do those, those 15 seconds of running and then walking for a minute. Do that for 30 minutes. And then you're done for the day. After the 30 minutes, you're going to do a walk. Just cool down. And during that time, give your body grace and gratitude. And then after that, you're going to repeat that that cycle for another two days a week. And now you're in a running program. And then how do you ramp it up after that? So, you know, every two weeks, you check in with yourself. If you feel like the 15 seconds is still hard, you know, you keep it at that pace. If you feel like the walking section, like you're recovering faster, shorten the walk. You know, move it from a minute to 45 seconds and try that out. A lot of people have tuned out of their bodies. And by practicing it this way, you're able to start to get into those habits of understanding where your body is in this space, in this world, and how you're actually feeling about your body. If you've never really run before, how do you find your form? We do have general guidelines when it comes to form. So like hand placement, right? You want to make sure that your hands are loosely closed. Imagine a pebble inside of your hand, and you want that pebble to move freely, but you don't want that pebble to fall out your hands. Another thing is, is that don't look down. You wouldn't believe how many people look down at their feet when they're running. You want to look at the horizon, and you want to look as you're scanning the horizon um, anywhere between six to eight feet in front of you. Next, let's talk about breathing. So, you know, you want to do belly breathing. You want to make sure, like, those breaths are getting down and you're really moving that diaphragm. And one of the ways or one of the exercises that you can do to, like, test this out, it's literally just put your hand on your belly as you breathe and see if your your belly is actually moving as you're breathing. Let's say that you just started running and you've been doing it for a month. How do you decide if this is something that you like enough to stick with it? Like if running is your thing or maybe if you'd rather try some other form of cardio. I think the thing is, is that you'll start to notice of like, it's just starting to get easier. Is the workouts not affecting you like it was like are you not as tired are you not as sore and you know you, you're just like mm, okay yeah like i'm running keep going yeah <laughs> why stop then 
if it's one of the things of like, yo, I can't do this. This is horrible. What I usually tell people is take a day off, take two off and see how that makes you feel and then try it again. And if you take a day or two off and you try it again and it's still not getting better. Yeah. Let's think about other sports. You know, the goal with my mission is to let people know that you can be active in the body that you are right now. And it doesn't have to be under the guise of weight loss, movement and regular physical activity is so beneficial. That was Martinez Evans speaking with NPR's Marielle Segura. Life Kit wants to help you make and keep your New Year's resolution. You can check out Life Kit's Resolution Planner. Choose areas of life that you would like to focus on, and the tool will guide you to some of Life Kit's best tips on the topic. You can find it at npr.org slash new year. You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. And this station is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday evening. Our nice January day today is leading to a generally cloudy, dry night tonight. Temperatures just below freezing. The clouds could last into tomorrow morning, but we should have a mainly sunny day all in all. Temperatures in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Claudine Gay became the first black president of Harvard University in July. Today, she resigned amid plagiarism accusations and criticism over her congressional testimony about anti-Semitism on campus. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, January 2nd. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the 14th Amendment says no state shall make a law that abridges the privileges of U.S. citizens, and that's the basis for decisions by two states to ban Donald Trump from their primary ballots. But that reasoning may not hold up. Legal scholars themselves are wrangling over the meaning of the amendment and whether it applies. So there's a lot of ambiguity that might end up with the Supreme Court deciding. Also, the latest outburst of political violence in South Korea as the country's opposition leader has been stabbed in public. It's 6.01 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Biden administration is asking the Supreme Court to wade into a dispute about razor wire along the southwest border. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the Justice Department wants the high court to lift restrictions on Border Patrol agents near the Rio Grande in Texas. Texas state authorities are threatening to arrest Border Patrol agents if they cut razor wire on land near the international border. But the Justice Department says that's a clear violation of the Constitution's Supremacy Clause, which says federal law on immigration trumps moves by the states. The DOJ has filed an emergency application with the Supreme Court to intervene. The federal government says it can take 10 to 30 minutes to cut through that razor wire, complicating the work of the Border Patrol and risking the lives of migrants who may suffer medical emergencies. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. It was likely to be a harbinger of a far more wide-ranging set of appeals likely to reach the Supreme Court. Former President Donald Trump is appealing a decision by Maine's Democratic Secretary of State to keep him off the ballot. The Maine decision based on a constitutional ban against people who engaged in insurrection from holding office. A ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court also invokes the Civil War-era constitutional amendment. It's expected to be appealed by Trump's campaign. A new data analysis from a researcher at the University of Texas at Austin finds women who believe they may soon be affected by abortion restrictions may be more likely to request abortion pills even if they're not yet pregnant. NPR's Sarah McCammon is more. The analysis looked at data from a European group that provides medication abortion through the mail and telemedicine. University of Texas researcher Abigail Aiken examined data from more than 48,000 people in the U.S. who'd chosen what's known as advanced provision, or requesting abortion pills in case they're needed in the future. Aiken says those requests spiked around events like the overturning of Roe v. Wade. If something's going to happen, um, some it seems like people are reacting to that uh, potential threat to access with, oh, I better get prepared for what might be coming. Aiken found a similar increase from people in states where lawmakers had proposed abortion bans. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Authorities in Colorado say a man leaving the scene of a car wreck overnight shot his way into the Colorado Supreme Court building. where They say they do not believe the incident was tied to a recent decision by the court to remove former President Donald Trump's name from the ballot there. Police say the incident occurred early this morning when the man identified as 43-year-old Brandon Olson was able to get inside the building. By taking a key from an unarmed security guard, numerous shots were fired. Olson was taken into custody, though, and there were no reported injuries. Wall Street starting out 2024 with more of a whimper than a bang. The Dow was up 25 points. The Nasdaq fell 245 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Harvard President Claudine Gay is stepping down her post after just six months on the job. She announced her resignation today in a letter to the Harvard community. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has more. Gay wrote that she made the decision so the university can meet this challenging moment with, quote, a focus on the institution rather than any individual. Her six-month tenure as president has been rocky. She's faced backlash from alumni and others for a delayed statement that critics say didn't strongly enough condemn the Hamas attacks on Israel. Republican lawmakers then called Gay to Capitol Hill to testify about anti-Semitism on campus, where she again faced criticism for her weak responses. She has also faced growing concern over plagiarism in her previous academic work. Harvard's main governing body says provost and chief academic officer Alan Garber will serve as interim president. Gay intends to stay on as a faculty member at Harvard. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. 
Some new tax cuts are in effect with the start of the new year. They come from the billion-dollar tax relief legislation Governor Maura Healey signed into law in October. A larger child and dependent tax credit is among the changes. Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation President Doug Howgate says parents should really notice the change. For tax year 2023, so the one just ended, the amount was raised to $310. And now this year, so going into effect yesterday, it goes up to $440. So that's really the big one that was phased in over a couple years. Supporters say increased tax credits will also spur housing development in so-called gateway cities such as Chelsea, Lowell and Brockton. Many of the other tax changes will be retroactive to last January, including a larger earned income tax credit. One person has died. More than 30 have been displaced after an early morning fire in Cambridge. Flames broke out shortly after 4.30 at the 30-unit apartment building on Chester Street. More than 60 firefighters responded to the scene right near Davis Square. One firefighter was taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. The cause remains under investigation. The Healy administration has submitted a second bi-weekly report on the Massachusetts family shelter system. It shows that the state spent more than $40 million in two and a half weeks in December. The money went toward the regular shelter system as well as new overflow shelter sites. And if you still need to get rid of your Christmas tree, maybe a goat could help. And we're talking about a real live goat. One local business, Christmas Tree for Me in Boston, can help arrange it. Company staffers will pick up your tree, vacuum your living room, and donate the tree to a local farm. Company co-owner Jeff Fisha says it's an eco-friendly way to dispose of the tree. They love them. They snack on them all year long. And there's good nutrients in the needles and the small branches that they'll enjoy eating. Tree pickup services will run through January 7th. In the forecast, pretty nice night ahead. Temperatures right about the mid to upper 20s should be generally cloudy overnight. And then for tomorrow, we should see the sunshine move in gradually, rising to the mid 40s. Clouds return on Thursday, and then sunshine's back for Friday. 35 degrees in Boston at 608. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Former President Donald Trump has been kicked off the primary ballots in Maine and Colorado. Just this afternoon, Trump filed an appeal with the Maine Superior Court and is also expected that he'll appeal the Colorado decision. Nevertheless, several other states are considering challenges to Trump appearing on their state's primary ballots. All of the challenges are based on the 14th Amendment Insurrection Clause and are argue the likely Republican nominee should be excluded because of his role in the January 6th insurrection. But what could these challenges and decisions mean practically and politically for the former president? Those are questions we're going to discuss with NPR senior editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hey, great to be with you, Anna. So former President Trump has appealed the main decision, and he'll likely appeal the Colorado decision to the Supreme Court. But would these states actually matter to Trump in the general election? Well, you know, both have trended Democratic, so they're not exactly swing states. You know, Colorado used to be one, but not anymore, really, with the growth in Denver and its suburbs. Trump did win an electoral vote out of Maine, we should say, in 2016, because they apportioned their electoral votes by congressional district, not winner take all, like most of the other states. And one of those districts does lean to the right. You know, certainly with how close elections have been this century, though, you know, every electoral vote counts. But this is really beyond the idea of simply counting electoral votes. You know, it goes to what 
what's fair, you know, and these novel interpretations of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which states that no one who had been an office holder can hold office again if they, quote, engaged in insurrection or gave aid or comfort to those that did. You know, and this has never been tested really legally before. And it's coming at a time when the caucuses and primaries are kicking off in less than two weeks. Yeah, that's right. Domenico, I mentioned that there are a couple states where there are similar challenges. When you think through the fact that any presidential candidate needs 270 electoral votes to win, could former President Trump being kept off the ballot in any of the other states make a difference here? Theoretically, it could. I mean, you know, there are challenges in swing states like Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Virginia, and Wisconsin. But we got to throw a little bit of cold water on the likelihood that Trump is going to be left off the ballot anywhere at the end of the day. You know, Colorado and Maine are in the minority on this right now. Colorado is the only state court that's weighed in on this. Maine Secretary of State, you know, acknowledges herself that, you know, this was only the beginning of the process in her state. You know, the state court there will eventually weigh in. And both states don't have much teeth behind their decisions because they're essentially deferring to the U.S. Supreme Court and calling for it to act. And I have to say, I have a hard time believing this won't be settled by the Supreme Court. The clock is really ticking here. I mean, I don't have to tell you this, but the primaries are just around the corner. And I mean, ballots have to go out to give people time to vote. How does this legal odyssey factor into that? I mean, it's potentially a real mess. I mean, ballots are going out soon in all of the states for the primaries. And as people start thinking about the presidential election now in this new year, it really is going to cause a lot of confusion. You know, we've already seen that with Trump's legal problems otherwise, with the multiple criminal counts that he's facing. But this is more tangible even than that, because this is about whether his name will even be on the ballot in some of these places. And it's already a complicated process. Overseas and military ballots are going to have to be printed and sent out, and more urgently, dealing with the primaries. And we should just remind folks here that these cases, they're separate from the criminal charges that the former president faces in several courts across the country. Domenico, where do those stand? Yeah, I mean, they are separate, but they're part of this whole sort of tangled web we've been talking about. You know, those cases are also in limbo somewhat because of delays that we've seen. You know, the name of the game really for Trump's team is delay, delay, delay. They're trying to kick the timeline as far down the road as they can in hopes that we don't see any trial this year. You know, he he could win re-election, they hope, and move to have the federal cases, for example, dismissed. The state cases are going to be tougher for him to do that. And a state like Georgia, which has its election interference case, is slated to begin August 5th, which could mean an O.J. Simpson-style trial with cameras in the courtroom taking place during the general election. That is, of course, if that trial even starts on time. And Domenico, last thing about the voters. How is all of this playing with them? Well, when I talk to Republicans, I really see what's happening in Colorado and Maine as evidence for Trump's argument that he's been unfairly persecuted, that, you know, these are politically motivated. And it's really quite something because we all saw what happened on TV January 6th, three years ago now. And yet a new Washington Post University of Maryland poll out today showed that fewer than one in five Republicans think that the January 6th protesters were, quote, mostly violent. And they, that's down eight points compared to three years ago. So it just shows you how much Trump's public relations effort on this has worked in the last three years with his base, why he's only strengthened his hand in the primary, and why it's been so hard for any of his Republican rivals to dislodge him. NPR senior editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro, thank you. You're so welcome.
Okay, so 2024 is an election year, yes, here in the U.S., but also in South Korea. And that country's political calendar got off to a violent start this week when an assailant stabbed the leader of South Korea's main opposition party with a knife. NPR's Anthony Kuhn says some observers see it as a warning sign about the state of politics in one of Asia's leading democracies. Lee Jae-myung is the leader of the opposition Democratic Party. He was squeezing his way through a scrum of journalists and supporters in the southern city of Busan when an assailant posing as a supporter approached him, pretending to try to get his autograph. He lunged at E and struck him in the neck with a knife. Police hustled the assailant away and arrested him. He fell to the ground, bleeding. He was taken to a local hospital and then airlifted to Seoul for surgery. President Yoon Song-yeol, who narrowly beat E for the presidency in 2022 elections, condemned the attack as unacceptable. Democratic Party spokesman Kwon Chil-sung spoke to reporters after the incident. We strongly condemn this terrorist attack by the unidentified assailant, he said as it is clearly a destructive act against democracy. Kwan later said that E is in intensive care after doctors repaired damage to his jugular vein. Busan police later told reporters that the suspect in the attack was a man surnamed Kim, born in 1957. Kim told police he had intended to kill E, so police planned to charge him with attempted murder. Police are still trying to find out his motivation. Political violence is hardly new to South Korea. Yi's predecessor was attacked by an assailant with a blunt instrument two years ago. Political commentator Yi Jong-hoon, who is not related to the opposition chief, says Tuesday's attack shows a combination of social and political ills afflicting South Korea. On the social side, he notes, the country has seen an increase in crimes committed by alienated loners with extreme views. On the political side, he says... Bipartisan cooperation is disappearing, and in its absence, the politics of anger is spreading. This has to do with politicians' weakening capability for political negotiation. During the previous liberal administration of President Moon Jae-in, he says, there were at least attempts at compromise, even if they didn't work. But under this administration, bipartisan cooperation has disappeared and extreme confrontation between the two parties has continued. And more recently, ahead of the general elections, the confrontations are deepening. He notes that conservative politicians have been attacked too, including former President Park Geun-hye. A stabbing attack on her when she was opposition chief in 2006, he says, helped her party win local elections that year. A lot is riding on this April's general elections. South Korea's economic growth is slowing and its population is aging and shrinking. And tensions on the Korean peninsula are mounting as North Korea builds up its nuclear arsenal and cultivates closer ties with Russia and China. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. 
Anna Ophelia Murgia is best known in the U.S. as the voice of Mama Coco in the 2017 Disney Pixar movie Coco. In Mexico, she was a well-known actor known for her work across film, television, and theater. She died on Sunday at the age of 90. Mexico's National Institute of Fine Arts announced her death on social media over the weekend. NPR's Andrew Limbong has this appreciation. The 1978 movie Naufragio opens with a woman in a robe prepping what looks like a boy's room. We see travel posters on the wall, a globe on the desk as she unmakes the bed and lays out some clothes and tells herself that he will be here tomorrow. He is her son Miguel, and we know through Ana Ofelia Marguilla's longing looks that this is more wishful thinking than anything else. Marguilla brings that same dreamlike quality to her role in 1991's Mi Querido Tom Mix, where she plays a grandma, proudly declaring that no one is faster than her favorite on-screen cowboy Tom Mix. Nadie es más rápido que Tom Mix. Si lo sabré yo. Y no me digas abuela. And of course, in 2017's Coco, she voices Mama Coco, the aging matriarch who is losing her memory, grasping onto what little she remembers of her father. Papa is home. Mama. Calmese, calmese. Papa is coming home. No, Mama. It's okay. I'm here. Who are you? Ana Ophelia Marguilla was born in 1933. She made her onstage debut in 1954 in Trial by Fire. Her acting career spanned decades, racking up prestigious awards, including multiple Ariel Awards, Mexico's Oscars. Earlier this year, the National Autonomous University of Mexico gave her its Ingmar Bergman Medal for her acting work. At the ceremony, fans and peers spoke lovingly about her work, but when it was Marguilla's turn to speak, she said, Estoy exhausta. That she was exhausted from all the attention, and why for me? Otra vez que yo por qué? A mí por qué? But it's because of moments like the big song in Coco, where Ana Ofelia Marguilla's Mama Coco remembers her father with her great grandson's help. Until you're in my arms Andrew Limbaugh, and Pure News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday evening. The first trading day of the new year saw the Dow up, by not by too much, less than a tenth of a percent today. S&P and NASDAQ both lost territory. The S&P was down more than a half percent. The NASDAQ gave up more than one and six-tenths percent. The state's first offshore wind developer has missed its own deadline to start powering local homes. Vineyard wind developers said the project would start to deliver power to the grid before the end of 2023, but that hasn't happened. The first of the project's 62 turbines generated power Sunday evening, but more testing is needed to transport power to the grid. And Lexington-based Voyager Therapeutics is expanding its relationship with Swiss pharmaceutical giant Novartis. They struck a deal worth up to $1.2 billion. Under the agreement, Voyager will develop gene therapies for Huntington's disease and spinal muscular atrophy. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. WBUR supporters include Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. 
sunbugsolar.com. A waning moon tonight, increasing clouds about 28 for a low. Tomorrow should see the sunshine move in gradually, rising to the mid-40s. Clouds should return for Thursday and then sunshine again for Friday. Bruins and Celtics both have a work night tonight. Celts are out in Oklahoma City to play the Thunder. The Bruins are also on the road in Columbus, Ohio to meet the Blue Jackets. It's 620. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. In America, few things get tempers flaring more than parking. Yet around the country, cities are throwing out their own parking requirements, hoping to end up with less parking and more housing, as NPR's Laurel Wamsley reports. In Austin, Texas, the city council recently proposed something that could seem like political kryptonite, getting rid of parking minimums. Those are the rules that dictate how much parking housing developers and businesses must provide, as in a certain number of spaces for every apartment. Some residents, like Malcolm Yates, were against it. Austin has developed as a low-density city without adequate mass transportation system. Austin citizens cannot give up their cars. But much more numerous were voices like Ty Kovenkis in support of eliminating the city's minimums and the impact they've had, from housing costs to congestion to walkability. I think our country has used its land wastefully. We literally paved paradise and put up a parking lot. The amendment sailed through the council, making Austin the biggest city in the country to eliminate all its parking mandates. But it's not just Austin. More than 50 others across the country have thrown out their minimums, from Anchorage, Alaska and San Jose, California, to Gainesville, Florida. They're all just dead weight. That's what Tony Jordan, the president of the Parking Reform Network, thinks of the requirements. One problem is just how arbitrary they can be. Bowling alleys are one of my favorite. He says the number of required parking spots per bowling lane could vary from two to five in cities right next to each other. What's the difference between a bowler in city A and city B? Nothing. It's just these codes were put in very arbitrarily back 30, 40 years ago, and they're very hard to change because every time the city wants to change them, there's a whole big hoopla. But random as these rules can be, they have major consequences. Parking creates sprawl and makes neighborhoods less walkable. Asphalt traps heat and creates runoff. And parking minimums can add major costs to building new housing. A single space in a parking structure can cost $50,000 or more. But the real problem, says Tony Jordan, is what doesn't get built. The housing that could have gone in that space or the housing that wasn't built because the developer couldn't put enough parking. So we just lose housing in exchange for having convenient places to store cars. A new survey from Pew Charitable Trusts found that 62% of Americans support property owners and builders to make decisions about the number of off-street parking spaces instead of local governments. Angela Greco, a 36-year-old musician and copywriter in Austin, is one of them. I love it. I think it's great. She drives, but prefers to walk or take transit. She's not worried that doing away with the old rules will make it too hard to find parking in Austin. And I've lived in, like, cities where it's way more difficult, like New York and L.A. Parking just isn't that difficult in Austin to me, even in really dense areas. And what about the idea that cities without good transit can't cut back on parking? 
Jonathan Levine, professor of urban planning at the University of Michigan, says cities' requirements can make good transit nearly impossible. An area that has a lot of parking is transit-hostile territory. That parking essentially is calling to the drivers, drive here, park here. So if you keep on designing those areas by governmental mandate, you're creating areas that transit can't serve effectively. These ideas are spreading, and many more U.S. cities, including New York, Milwaukee, and Dallas, are now exploring getting rid of their parking minimums, too. Laurel Wamsley, NPR News. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Just six months into her tenure, Harvard University's President Claudine Gay is resigning. The announcement today follows a cascade of events. It started with criticism over the university's response in October to the Hamas attacks on Israel and the subsequent handling of incidents of anti-Semitism on campus. Gay then faced backlash to her testimony last month in Congress about anti-Semitism on campus. The pressure intensified when plagiarism allegations surfaced related to her previous academic writings. WBR's Max Larkin has been following this story and joins us now. Max, was President Gay forced out by the corporation at Harvard, or did she resign on her own? I think it's a little hard to say at this at this early stage, um, you know, with a pretty kind of a bombshell announcement. We do have two statements, one from Gay, one from the corporation. Gay says she made this decision on her own, but in consultation with members of the Harvard Corporation. And then the corporation said they've accepted it, but with sorrow. And her own statement, why did she say she's resigning? Yeah, it's poignant in a way, Lisa. She said it was, quote, difficult beyond words, but also she deemed it in the university's best interest that the community basically needed to heal. And I think in a moment of candor, she said it was a frightening past few months, saying she was, quote, subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more here, and and also first the background. There are two major issues at play. I alluded to them in the introduction. The testimony from Congress and the plagiarism accusations. Can you um, give us the uh, background on both of those things? Yeah, I think Gay gave a kind of legalistic answer in what was a very, very difficult setting, that congressional hearing last month. she was heard to be saying that she didn't take threats of violence against Jewish students seriously, and that, unsurprisingly, perked a lot of people's ears up and and, uh, and upset them. Um, and then in the wake of that, um, a number of instances of copying or inadequate citation showed up in her published work. Um, so, But it was often the same people, including right-wing media outlets, uh, who were um, making the claim. So in, in a sense, people who were critical of her stance on pro-Palestinian protest were also um, digging through her written work. What kind of reaction are you hearing today to her resignation? I think people are stunned, Lisa. Uh, most people are off campus because it's still an academic break. But my colleague, Carrie Young, spoke earlier today to Ryan Enos, a political scientist at Harvard who would be a faculty colleague of of Claudine Gay's. He was one of the hundreds of faculty there who rallied around Gay with a petition in mid-December, and he thought her job was safe, as a lot of people did. So this was a grim development. 
for, I think it's sad for Harvard and I think for higher education in the United States, because quite frankly, this is somebody being forced out of a position by mob rule. That has always been a dynamic here, that there were more people who really hated Gay, really wanted her to go off campus than on. But it's not quite so simple. There were two students, for instance, in the, in the Harvard Crimson earlier this week who said, uh, this, this has been a distraction at Thanksgiving, at Hanukkah, at Christmas, and, you know, there's sort of a cloud over our university, and it's time for her to go. So you might think, uh, and we're running up against the clock here so briefly, you might think when a university president resigns, that's the end of it, but this doesn't seem likely in this case. Uh, what are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, the war goes on, the protests go on, and now they'll be doing it under their interim president, Alan Gerber, who's the pro- provost, a uh, longtime provost at Harvard. Then they'll have to find another leader who can better steer through what is quite a difficult position. One more quick question. President Gay said in her resignation letter that it has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and upholding scholarly rigor, two bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am, and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. You referred to this earlier. Can you tell us what she's talking about there? I mean, there were trucks with her face on it the first black president of Harvard University in almost 400 years saying the best friend Hamas ever had. That was in public. And both she and the corporation alluded to things that happened, as it were, offstage, out of public view. This is a school, Lisa, that's becoming more diverse. She was hugely inspirational as the daughter of Haitian immigrants. And for her to leave just six months in under these circumstances, it is almost a trauma in itself. All right. We know that uh, you'll have more tomorrow morning on WBUR. WBUR's Max Larkin, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts.